We hear this word from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 13. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we give you this command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stay away from all believers who live idle lives and don't follow the tradition they received from us. For you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. We worked hard day and night so we would not be a burden to any of you. We certainly had the right to ask for you to feed us. But we wanted to give you an example to follow. Even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and meddling in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. It's the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Most holy and gracious God, Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for your grace and for your life and your hope amongst us. And Lord, as we enter into this time of deep discipleship, we ask for you to open our hearts and our minds and our ears so that we may be attentive to you. Turn out the distraction of our day and our lives so that we may focus entirely upon your word speaking to us. Or may I become less so that you may be more in this moment. May the words of my mouth and meditation my heart be pleasing to you. Our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've been indulging in some of my favorite hobbies. You've got to have some hobbies, right? Or else you just go nutty every so often. So lately I've been indulging in one of my favorite hobbies, and that is presidential history. I am a nerd. We've admitted this for three years. It's okay. There's two sides of my nerdum when it comes to presidents. One, I love watching election returns. So all this week, I have been fascinated watching how one county in Arizona means this and how a county in New York means this and how if you add five votes here and six votes here, you get 25 votes somewhere else. I love all this stuff. I love to just watch it, and I can watch it all night without ever getting my blood pressure to raise a point. You can ask Abby. She can t attest to this. And she can also attest to you that I love watching British election returns as well. I am nutty. I am nutty. But the other side of, of my love for elections and presidential history is that I love studying the presidents. And I love studying presidents in such a way that I do so to imagine what can we take from this president and what they have dealt with during their administration, during their leadership time, and how can those lessons be applied to ministry? Some of my favorite leadership lessons, some of my favorite leadership stories come 
not from my fellow pastors or colleagues that I have been so enamored with throughout my ministry, but also, but more likely Abraham Lincoln. I get a lot of how I lead and how I think through reading about Abraham Lincoln and watching someone who led through deep depression and deep discouragement, but yet kept his focus on what was most important. I get a lot of focus on that. But one of my favorite presidents to study is one who would not have won the White House had it not been for West Virginia. And that's John Kennedy. He's one of my favorite presidents to study. If you know the story, if it wasn't for West Virginia, the primary in 1960, he probably would not have won the Democratic nomination and likely would never have won the White House. It changed the dynamic of the election from thinking that he could not win as a Catholic president because he had won in a Protestant state. Changed the whole dynamic. But one of the things I love about studying him, and I've studied him throughout his whole, my whole life, and Abby can tell you this as well, I collect, got all my grandmothers and grandfathers clippings about Kennedy somewhere in my house. They cut all the, the Beckley Herald and the Beckley Register articles about Kennedy, and I've got a whole envelope full of them that deal with not just his inauguration, but also the assassination. I've got them all tucked away somewhere. I didn't get anything from my grandfather when he died except for a rock from Thomas Jefferson and JFK articles. That's it. And Dale Earnhardt dolls. Literally, Dale Earnhardt dolls. If anybody wants them, I'm, they're for sale, but, and they'll go to apportionments. But Dale Earnhardt Barbie dolls, that's what I got. You laugh, but that was my inheritance. But one of the things I love studying about Kennedy is his rhetoric. He was a great orator of leadership and vision. He didn't get to see a lot of his vision come out and come to fruition, but he could speak with a word to speak vision. We will go to the moon. We will do the hard, the hard things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We memorize these words, not just because you grew up with them and I studied them, but because they are fascinating of how they energized the whole people to go to the moon, not just so that we could beat Russia, but so that this vision could be lived out. But one of my favorite pieces of rhetoric that came from Kennedy came in his very first day in office from his inaugural address sitting out on a cold day that would have made someone from Massachusetts blush, a cold winter day, sitting on the east side of the Capitol overlooking the U.S. Supreme Court building, he stood out there and made this statement, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Stirring words, right? Stirring words that called us into leadership, into service. He was asking a new generation of people to take on the mantle of looking at someone else as your brother and sister. To take on the mantle of leadership, to take on the mantle of caring for your neighbor, to take on the mantle of thinking about someone as more important than yourself. But to also ask it in such a way that we don't just ask others to give to us, but that we're willing to give back in response that we're not just receivers of things, but we're also givers of things. Throughout my ministry, I have taken that line and I have 
use some poetic preacher license with it. Yes, we pastors take license on things every so often, just like writers do, and we have some license on this. And I've reimagined that quote over the years to this. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. Ask not what your church can do to keep you happy. Ask not what your church can do to make your needs met. Ask not what your church can do to make sure that the pews are always comfortable, that the temperature is always right, and that we do the things we've always wanted them to be done. Ask how you can be a part of where God is leading us as a community. Ask how you can be used, but in your hands, in your feet, your words, and your passions to serve Christ in our community. Ask not what the church can do for you, but ask what you can do for the church. Words, perhaps, for us to think about as we look at this passage from 2 Thessalonians, where Paul is giving a denozo slap to the church in Thessalonica. You see, he's dealt with this church for some time. It's a church he's familiar with, but yet every so often this church has decided that they don't need to do anything. In both 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, he's dealing with this idea of these idle people that are just comfortable with, so to speak, sitting in our pews and not doing anything. There was a, a mantra in that day of people being idle workers in the Greco-Roman world. And what it meant was that you went to the marketplaces expe expecting to take advantage of what someone else had done. And being able to get the benefits of that work. It annoyed people because they had such a low value of manual labor anyways to see people who were going after someone else's work and saying, well... I want to have that benefit, but not just that. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in a moment. But they were also the people that were being the chatty ones, looking over someone else's work, going, I would do it better this way. Or if you would do it my way, things would be so much better. Those busybodies that have nothing else better to do but to sit around and complain. Paul says, look, I, I need you to get to work. I need you to be the church. And if you're not going to be the church, then you probably shouldn't eat. Now, we read that passage. And before we get into anything else, I want to take a little bit of a rabbit trail. Because we have likely have heard this passage talked about as, well, if someone isn't willing to work, we shouldn't eat. And Paul said so, right? That's not what Paul is dealing with at all. Once again, Context is everything. If whenever I leave here, if you never remember anything else I've ever said, I hope you remember context is everything. Because you can't read scripture without reading context. Paul's not dealing with whether or not someone shouldn't be given food if they're not able to work, as often what gets twisted around in our conversations today. He's dealing with life in the church. He's dealing with our relationships with one another. Should you get the benefits of being part of the church if you're not willing to live 
as the church. If you're not willing to put work into it. Paul says that we should imitate his, desire, his message and his work ethic of being constantly working for the kingdom, working for Christ, working for the church that is to be the ongoing witness of Jesus Christ in a broken and hurting world. But Paul's dealing with these idlers, these busybodies, these bench warmers, those sideline people, the folks who sit in the stands and complain and say, well, if I would have run this play, we would have scored a touchdown every single play. Paul's dealing with these folks that just want to sit in the back and complain. And we don't know why there was this issue with idle work in idle, an idle, inactive church in that day. There's thoughts based on the context of First and Second Thessalonians that the people thought that they didn't need to be the church, that they didn't need to do the work of Christ because, well, the resurrection has happened. Christ has, come, has returned through the resurrection, so we're good. We just need to live out our days. We've got our get out of hell free card. We're going to go to heaven. It's all good. We don't have to do anything. There's arguments that that's what was going on in the church of Thessalonica. They just didn't see the point of being the church. But Paul reminds them that they're called to always do good. We're called to be the church. But I wonder what today motivates us to be idle. What motivates us to be inactive today? What motivates us to sit in the pews or sit at home and think, I don't need to be the church. I don't need to care for my neighbor. That I don't need to care for the poor, the oppressed, the forgotten. That I don't need to tell someone about how much Jesus has meant to me or that I don't need to invest in my community. What makes someone think that they don't need to be the church? What excuses do we put into our language and into our mindset that allows us to think that way? Sometimes we'll say we're too old. We're too old. We've got gray hair, wrinkles that we can count. We're not as able to move as fast as we could once before. Our eyes droop a little bit lower. Our vision's not as great. We don't like driving at night. We're too old. And we'll come up with that excuse as being too old. Or we'll say we're too busy. We got too much other things to do. We, we've got our jobs, or I got our grandkids, or I've got all 10 episodes of The Crown to watch. If you haven't watched it, it's not that good, but. Or I've got to watch all the football games this weekend. I'm too busy. 
I don't know enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to do. I'm afraid to fail. I'm afraid that if I, I did something that nobody would show up and we just waste our time. Or we don't have the money. We need to save the money to just pay for our, our electric bill and our utility bills and to pay for our apportionment. We don't have that money to make a difference in this world. Or even we'll say this. Now, pastor, that's what we pay you to do. It's not my job to be the church. It's your job. And if you don't bring enough people in here, if we don't bring enough money in here, if you don't spend every waking hour of your life doing the mission of the church, then we'll go find you someone else who will. Because it's not my job to be the church. It's your job, pastor. We just sit and receive the benefits of your work. You notice what happens when we give up all those excuses? There's a lot of negativity in that, right? A lot of negativity. And it all rounds into this. I can't be the church. It's too hard. It's too much. It's too busy. I can't do it. So we allow negativity to come into us. We allow negativity to define our thoughts. And so then we do this. We interpret everything out of negativity. We don't have enough people that showed up for worship. We don't have enough people who come to this. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough people. Because our main focus is not being the church. It is about keeping the doors open one more week. And when that becomes our focus to keep the doors open one more week after one more week, we have closed the church from its mission and ministry. When all we care about is keeping the doors open of a church, we have shut the doors from mission and ministry because we play it safe. We're no longer interested in making a difference in our neighborhood. We look at everything through the sense, through the lens of dollars and cents and thinking of the church as an institution, not as a mission. When all we think about is scarcity, we make the excuses to not be the church. It's not what Paul, God calls us to be. It's not what Christ calls us to be. But when all we think about is the negativity, we miss the opportunity. There's opportunities all around us for, to be the church. Opportunities all around us. But to move from inactive to active, we have to seize the opportunity. We have to be willing to see that God has something for us in our ability today, in our gifting today, in our strengths today, to do what God has called us to do. We have to see that God has empowered us and equipped us for this moment today. 
I believe that in every church, God has put the people in place that God desires to make a difference in our community. We just have to believe it. Every one of you, from the oldest member of our church to the youngest member of our church, has what God has equipped us with to make a difference in Pea Ridge, in Barbersville, in Huntington, in Cabell County, in West Virginia, and around the world. God has empowered us with passions, with blessings, and with hope. Those passions, those gifts, those moments are not for us to make a benefit for ourselves. They are to make a benefit for our community. You're not too old. There's always something you can do. Some of the most important ministry that can happen is just sitting down having a conversation with someone else. You ain't too old for that. I'm too busy. I guarantee you most of you were watching the Marshall game yesterday. And I know two of us were cheering for the West Virginia-Oklahoma kick at the end of the game. (laughs) Moving on. If you got time to watch football, you got time to be the church. Not too tired. Doesn't take but an hour sometimes to go and pack a box for someone or write a letter or spend time investing in someone who's autistic that feels excluded from the church. Doesn't take a lot of time to invest in respite care for families that need hope or to spend time learning. And it's not my responsibility completely to do the mission and ministry of this church. One day I'm going to leave. Some of you might be cheering that, I don't know. But one day I'm going to be leaving. It might be sooner, it might be later. And it'll be for someone else who will come in after me to lead you. My goal as a pastor, my job as a pastor is to lead you as far as I can take you and then hand it off to someone else. But you know who remains after the pastor goes? You. This is your church. This is your community. This is your town. It takes all of us. And whatever skills we have and whatever abilities we have. Ask not what your church can do for you. Ask what you can do for your church. If all we're going to do in our ministry is to sit back and just let someone else do, our our reach is going to go ever smaller. If all we expect to do is the same thing we've always done, and not think about what we need to do to reach that young family, to reach that special needs family, to reach that family that's working right now. Our reach is going to get ever smaller and smaller.
and smaller. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. God's with you. The one promise we have in being the church is that there's never a moment in the church that we are alone and we've got to do this all on our own. We are guided by the presence of God in everything we do. This is your church. This is your community. What are you willing to do to be the church? Will you pray with me? Most holy and gracious God, Father, Lord, we give you thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you for your gifts and for your love and your grace. Lord, help us to be your church. Put us to work, God. Put us to mission and ministry. Use us, Lord. Use us. In Christ we pray. Amen.